0: This is Steve Carter. Steven, Stevie! Older than you, time traveling. New York City art model, musician, actor. Titillating facts. In a four-year open relationship with a woman half my age. Psychedelic. I got plenty and nothing. Why fake it, bro? don't make it. And now, from
1: wherever he is, here's Chris Ryan. Uh,
2: that's
1: right, from wherever I am, here I am. To wherever you are, there you are. I got a really cool email this week from Uganda. A guy there is uh, hanging out, doing some work with um, NGO, and he listens to the podcast in Uganda. Very cool. Uh, In fact, I am going to play a song by a Ugandan rapper that he told me about, and I listened to, and I really like her stuff. Her name is MC Twitch. But that's coming in a few minutes. First of all, uh, let me tell you about this podcast. This is with the great Jim Fadiman, guru, psychedelic pioneer, guru of the microdosing movement, which is sweeping the nation, particularly Silicon Valley. I recorded this a couple days ago in Santa Cruz with my buddy, Kyle Tierman, host of the Kyle Tierman Show which I've talked about on this podcast uh, ad nauseum, uh, he's a good guy. He set up the the podcast and the three of us recorded it together. So we're co-releasing it. If you listen to the Kyle Tierman show, you might hear it there. Uh, he'll His intro will be different though. And he'll have a different uh, snippet from someone in the world talking about what they're doing. If you want to hear yourself at the beginning of the podcast... Record uh, no more than thirty seconds, please. Um, little intro thing, voice memo and send it to me at Christopher assistant at gmail.com Once again, that's Christopher assistant at gmail.com and maybe in the subject heading just put uh, intro clip or something like that so we make sure it gets into the right folder thanks i've got a bunch of them they're great Uh, i'm going to play them all i think unless i die before i play them all in which case i'm sorry but i assume you'll accept that now there may be some of you out there who don't know who jim fadiman and kyle tierman are so i'm going to read you the intros that kyle sent me because kyle is far more professional about this stuff than i am So since he wrote them, I'm going to put them on my website, but I'm also going to read them to you. Dr. Jim Fadiman is considered America's wisest and most respected authority on psychedelics and their use. In 1974, he co-founded the Institute for Transpersonal Psychology and has since continued to explore potential medical and creative uses of psychedelic drugs. In his most recent book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, Safe Therapeutic and Sacred Journeys, which came out in 2011, He provides insight into safe and correct uses of psychedelic drugs. The book was inspired by his unique knowledge of psychedelic experiences and his desire to explain beneficial uses of those substances. He has a B.A. from Harvard University and an M.A. and Ph.D. from Stanford. Kyle Tierman, oh, by the way, jamesfatiman.com is where you can learn more about Jim. Kyle Tierman is a professional big wave surfer, documentary filmmaker, and podcast host. He possesses the rare ability to move seamlessly between intellectual and athletic circles and serve as a conduit between typically disconnected worlds. That's true. I've seen him do it. With the support of his longtime surf sponsor, Patagonia, he created and hosted a YouTube series called Surfing for Change. And uh, he went around the world creating, shooting, short-form gonzo documentaries about current environmental issues that have been happening in areas that also have interesting surf situations. Uh, he, focused, he focused on the power people have to create systemic change through their everyday decisions. Yeah. Kyle's a great guy and doing interesting things. He's going places, I'm telling you. That kid's going places. Um I'm probably not going to yammer on too much more. I've got stuff to say, but I can say it later. I'll do a Roma episode where I can say what I have to say about the current state of the world this week. Um, Yeah, so I'm just going to leave it at that. I'm going to thank you for your support. I'm going to, uh, I think I'm going to, I never know what to do about this. Um, I'm tempted to read the names of people who support the podcast on Patreon as a way to thank them. Um, But then on the other hand, I'm aware of the fact that it gets kind of boring for you just listening to me read names. And there's also the question of do people even want their names read? You know, I mean, is it an invasion of privacy to say someone's name first and last name out loud? in public without them like telling you that that's cool. So I'm I'm not sure how to do that. Anyway, you know who you are. Thank you. Those of you who support the podcast on Patreon or by throwing some money into the PayPal jar or by writing reviews or telling your friends or whatever the hell you do, buying t-shirts from Julie and those stickers. We've got stickers now. If you go to tangentiallyspeaking.com, look in the store, you'll see the stickers. And, um, Yeah, however you support the podcast or even just by enjoying it, thank you for that. You create the audience and download numbers that allow me to approach people who otherwise would be too busy to hang out and shoot the shit with me for an afternoon. So even if you never send a single cent my way, you're still enriching my life. And for that, I thank you. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kyle Tierman and the great Jim Fadiman. Catch you next week. As promised, I'm going to play you out with a song all the way from Uganda. This is MC Twitch, and the song is called Fly With Me. MC Twitch, yeah, switching on the mic here. (laughs) I cara chaki ny ma lobo. O loba fimba kiki laj kiki kobo.
3: Ki shot my dog, chala shot palongolo. A nyira yuan. Mono drop mapen me. Jan mo do pei te me chalo fala fianangi
1: che dala. I che representin to the fullest. Let me tell you something. Wa do gulu, rap spine wanwa kiki. My own is peaceful, the pain is gone. Excuse me. So would you, would you, would you fly with me? baby sit the maria. She wanna would see my
0: On the way, we not a mugue and tocar a food day. Can a machine toy don't toy
1: one mugue. Can my will be on your papa the doctor pin yet in a pong, tell
0: and my meat, and then and that is so sweet. Meg one pecoyo con latin, <laughs> no latit, can a wubbe <laughs> wakan yara no tima liet. <laughs> but get what you could, no don't cook, carano don't ra, gulu pink ra, tiana mape mercada, don't puna ye, yota koa.
3: Pula your baby, get a girl, bala fire. Men I come in white money ever pay for dawah. Umwa in the manya. With the coach on a joyous worry more you dani. Within a ping of woman, you're the worry, gala wangi. Mona be sure basion winter chamu jogi, gaga wan. Yot the dog nah basu, cot nino nino, shame to check a dero, lock the gems catch him to try the dog a tity, no sky, go papa ye, chaliwello. In my hometown, everybody's Would doing fine. We come from the jungle,
0: the we we
1: the the we we if you hip hop, I'm not
0: going We flow, be a hip a a a i a
1: All right, we are here, uh, Kyle Tierman. This is the Kyle Tierman Tangentially Speaking mashup show <laughs> with our special guest, Jim Fadiman. Happy to be here. <laughs> I thought you were going to st- sing happy birthday. I almost a did. I felt like it. Yeah. Uh, we are sitting on an island in a surrounded by a, a malarial moat in Santa Cruz, California. I always like to set the scene. Uh, hard to explain. This is like a little Alice in Wonderland,
2: enchanted forest. There's a gazebo right there, and we are under a number of different trees, all in kind of frantic, fresh green bloom. It's uh, it's really beautiful. Frantic bloom. That's a you nice know what, phrase. In the spring, you get as much as you can before they, you know, before the bugs come.
0: Frantic bloom in a slice of forest. My dad has attended, I think, every weekend flea market since the 80s. (laughs) So uh, he's the kind of guy who can't pass up a good deal and gets no greater joy than the moment when someone needs a couch and he says what color do you need (laughs) actually my uh there's a story that my my mom's current husband foster needed a couch and um my mom said well you should ask eric before you go buy one and my dad said well what color would you like (laughs) purple i've got two of them (laughs) But I like that. He's, it's not, um, it doesn't come out of like a hoarder sentiment. It comes out of this kind of giving right, and producing sentiment.
2: I'm just trying to remember the name of the store in the 60s. The Diggers had a store in which everything was free. And at one point, there's a woman in there with a shopping bag, and she's shoplifting. <laughs> just for the fun of it. <laughs> she didn't it just couldn't get through that everything was free. Yeah. And so the manager walks over to her and says, "Can I help you?" <laughs> <laughs> and there's this wonderful moment where they're obviously on very different realities and he knows it. <laughs> right. Right. And it's and the what I love about it is the feeling of being caught But the only way out is goodness. Right. Mm.
0: Have you ever been to Cafe Gratitude? Yeah. Downtown? There's a bowl where you pay whatever you can.
1: Right. (laughs) I just, yesterday, coming back from... was it Davenport? Is Davenport, right? yeah, at yeah. Wallace Jenkins' house. I stopped at the uh, the Berry Farm. That's a cooperatively owned and Swan Berry Farm. Yeah, first organic berries in California, right? And mm-hmm. uh, sort of unionized. Very. It was great. Jay recommended we stop in there, and yeah, you, we got a piece of pie and some coffee and a, a, a flat of strawberries and all that. And then they're all priced, you know, marked priced. And then you go up and there's a, a iPad. And there's a tray full of money, and you can either pay with your credit card or you make pay with money, and you make your own change, and nobody's anywhere, and yeah, you just you're, yeah. it's just trust. Yeah, and yeah, I, I went to a place like that in Guatemala. It's one of the most beautiful places I've been um, near Tikal. It was a guest house that was run on the honor system. When you got in there, there was a little book. you get a page, and you just keep track of how many nights you stayed, how many beers you drank, how many meals you had. And at the end, you add it up, and you put the money in the box and have a good trip.
2: It was great. That's where I recovered from um, hepatitis. Huh. What a nice way to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking of a time in New England. I lived near Sudbury. Mm. Sudbury has the zip code of 1776. Mm. So it's a very little proud of itself for being small and ancient, <laughs> ancient, <laughs> and America. along the highway in the fall where I, when I arrived, were um little not even a stand but kind of a bench and on the bench were a number of of gallon jugs of fresh Apple juice, fresh un, that was fermenting as you watched, and a little cash box. And coming from California at that time, I was just so pleased to be there. Mm. It had such a, a wonderful feeling of you, who's going to know about this little box but us neighbors, and us neighbors trust each other, and the cash will accumulate, and that's the end of that. It was wonderful.
1: You know, do you ever think that it feels wonderful because that's the way we're meant to live. Yeah. And distrust. I, I mean, I often get accused of being sort of utopian. Well, dystopian, but utopian at the same time, in a sense. You <laughs> He's know? a
0: utopian curmudgeon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, you know, they say, you, you know, a cynic is a romantic who's been disappointed, mm. you mm. know? And, uh... I mean, I am a romantic as far as I'm constantly arguing against this Neo Hobbesian vision of human nature. I think we're we are clearly evolved to be kind, decent, giving, generous beings. That's how we survived. Right. right? That is just how it fucking worked. And now we're in this social system, this this environment that is totally alien to us. And we're learning to be distrustful and aggressive. And, you know, Kyle and I, before we turned on the mic, we were talking about how great podcasting is because it's an abundance economy. It doesn't take anything away from Kyle to introduce me to a friend like you. Sure. And then I have you on my podcast. <laughs> it It's all there's right. it's not zero sum. It's right. sure. It's, it's share. Real, it's yeah, great. Win win. It's all win win. And yeah. I think that's the way we evolved. And so every time we find ourselves needing to be suspicious and hoarding and, you know, protecting our little plot of land and all that.
2: It, it feels weird to us because we're not designed that way. Well, I've finally come around to the notion that till agriculture, we were doing all right. Yeah. And that agriculture allowed the first hoarding. Right. And once you had hoarding, it, it kind of devolves pretty easily from there. Right. Because then you hoard the people who guard it. Right. You then have guards. They become a military class if they're not employed they go raid someone else and mm-hmm. add to the hoard and so forth and so on and then we've worked we've tried to work our way out of that fairly poorly
1: well i think the the key is that the other thing that happens with that hoarding and the hierarchical political systems and and the other people becoming property once you have animals as property then people right. are property and you have right. slaves and women status plummets and all that um and, and religions and all that business. But you also have population increase. And once the population started ratcheting up, then then we're caught on the wheel. Yep. Because then you always need more land. And so those soldiers are out kicking the hunter-gatherers and the herdsmen out of their land so we can cultivate it. And it just, it never stops. Or it hasn't stopped till now, anyway. I was talking to.
0: <laughs> 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 Let's, birthday. Birthday.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Let's go somewhere else, guys. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I was talking to Bruce Dahmer last night yeah. at dinner, the wizard, and he was in, enlightening me to this concept of extractors and producers and how you can take any industry and you can look at it either as an extraction industry mm. or as a producing industry and how many classes we have to teach people to be better extractors. Right. And you know, a class to make you so good that you make people think that you're giving something when really you're taking something away from them.
1: Isn't that business? Right. Right. Selling high, buying low, right? It's, It's about getting more value for the product than the product Costs you to create, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys read Ishmael? No. That that book was recommended to me by Andy Weil, who we were talking about earlier, right. by Daniel Quinn. Uh, it's a very interesting sort of look at at this issue of hunter that the transition from hunter gathering to farming, and how it's been historically depicted as this great step forward, but in fact. Uh, it really isn't. He distinguishes between leavers and takers. Huh. Mm. Similar kind of distinction yeah. where the hunter-gatherers are the leavers. They take what they need, but then they move on and leave the
2: rest. Right, And then what we're getting to is sustainable agriculture mm. and uh, sustainable uh, fish agriculture. I mean, we, we are trying to come around to what it is in Hunter and gathering that works. Yeah, and I'm remembering living in New Mexico and talking to the people on on the at the pueblo, and talking about deer hunting because that was they were basically that was the only meat they could afford what they could kill. But when you go deer hunting onto sacred land, you never shoot the first deer. What you do is you say to the first deer, "I'm here. You're here." I'd love to be able to take some of your people home if that's okay with you. And if it's okay with you, you'll let me see them. But stepping back, kind of quote scientifically, what you're then saying is if, they're, if the deer population starts to go down, you won't see the first deer, or you'll only see that one deer. So it was trying to build in back mm. into the system a right. way of increasing the species for both both members of the same um, the same kind of metaphysical tribe, which is deer people, right? And people deer that was like one group. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It's interesting how these cultural memes are created that actually serve very deep functions. I mean, another one. Uh, some anthropologists argue that tension between different tribal groups serves to create a zone between the groups where nobody hunts sort of a demilitarized <laughs> a zone a green belt exactly <laughs> and that's where the animals can always reproduce and be safe because the you know the Comanches and the Apaches don't go in that area because they're afraid they'll run into each other so there's a safe area
0: That's interesting yeah. yeah it's interesting to look at the sloppy stories that continue that either serve a function or Are so detrimental You know like the zero sum story That like if you have it then I won't be able to have it Or something that has You know just a metaphor that's been Carried down through time that really does Serve a a deep purpose for Humanity and there's just So many of them
1: Yeah and the the question of Whether they're true or not sort of becomes
2: Secondary yeah well If they're a myth that resonates Then they're true right And that's an easy kind of test which is you go inside and it said mm, yes or mm. Mm. that's not my myth and uh, and what we're missing of course is a lot of those healthy healing myths you know we have prometheus where you give somebody technology and they eat your liver forever mm. That's not a zero-sum game. Wait, what? (laughs) Come again? Prometheus gave fire from the gods to humanity. The gods said, we are really pissed off. And Prometheus, we are tying you up to a mountaintop. And we are bringing an eagle in every day who tears out your liver. But because you're an immortal, your liver will grow back every day. As for pain, it's just fine. You have as much pain as any mortal. But that's what we're doing to you because you gave fire to people and now they will not, we will not be able to control them. Hmm. There you go.
1: There you go, right there. Uh, Jim, I don't remember (laughs) if you and I talked about this, but Uh I'm... Well, one more point on mythology, actually, because we were talking about our mutual friend Stanley Kropner. Yeah. Every time I hear someone use the word myth as a synonym for lie, right. I recoil. Yeah, because
2: they got it wrong. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the science religion, the scientistic religion, is really very been very detrimental. Science works fine. You know, it's kind of addition works fine. There's nothing evil about it. But. Basically, any system that says, I don't quite understand your system, but I do know it's wrong. Mm. That doesn't work. And it's incredibly popular. I mean, it's one of the great um, inventions of Christianity. Christianity was the first major religion that said, yeah, our God is really terrific, like everyone else says. And your God sucks, which nobody else had said. And again, that was one of those, the the game had not been, uh, had been win-win. You know, whoever God you worked with liked you, if you behaved in whatever whatever way they wished. But suddenly we had a system that said, if you're not with us, just by definition, just by your existence, you're against us. And not only are you against us, but it behooves us either to convert you or destroy you.
0: Why do you think uh, we need myth? Wow.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Why do we need story? Why do we need it? And the answer is, at one level, it seems to be practically genetic, that um, we really die for lack of story. Uh, and I wish I could remember the poet and the poetry, but it's, it's, uh, it's titled Birdsong in Times of War. Hmm. And it's what you must have if you're to survive. So the stories allow you to to handle the complexities of reality in a way that is not simplifying it, but is generalizing it. Um, so if I say I like birds and you say turkey vultures, which almost nobody likes, and I think I don't like turkey vultures either, but... That is a very small exception, and I'm not going to let go of my generalization just because it doesn't work in every case. And a myth is a way of, of telling you a very complicated stories in ways that you can not only understand, but can pass on. Right. Are you thinking
1: of a novel by Sebastian Falk's? <laughs> About World War One, yeah, called
2: Birdsong. Um, well, there's there's one little poem that that has that. Ah, okay, yeah, right. Uh, that's one of the wonderful things is we're sitting here in the woods, and we have access to a vast amount of human knowledge in our little telephones, Yeah. and that's really I don't think been fully recognized as what a incredible shift in the culture that any person. Has access to the same amount of encyclopedic knowledge as any other person, irrespective of education, social class, or anything else. As long as you can pay a monthly fee for a phone, makes it hard to win bar bar bets. Exactly, it's like the bar bet business (laughs) (laughs) is over. Talk about it's gone with horseshoes. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, What I was going to ask you earlier, I I don't know if we talked about this or if you guys talked about this. I'd love to have a a more sort of fleshed out sense of where you were and what you were up to in the mid to late 60s
2: oh my well in the mid to late 60s i was had graduated from stanford with my draft evasion phd and i then got married which was my draft evasion marriage um, and i know that that makes both stanford and my wife perhaps a little sad, but that was one (laughs) of their advantages. (laughs) And I was um, one of the early workers with psychedelics at high doses for transcendent experience. So I was moving around in a world where the obvious goal for people should be to come to the level of transcendence where the divisions between people seem to be illusory. And the dominant... Um, energetic system that ran the universe was love and that word has so many other connotations it's a little awkward but that seemed to be the best way to explain what people were experiencing and I'm aware now uh, right now there's a book by Michael Pollan about psychedelics and about his experience and he basically tries to struggle with that same realization um, and as he says, it's it's very hard to do that without it sounding like a cliché. And what he said, a cliché is a truth that has been drained, but it's a truth. And so I was living in this world where, on the one hand, I was feeling that it was quite possible that humanity could become um, civilized. On the other hand, I'm avoiding the Vietnam War, which... Was as representative of the um, demise of civilization almost as anything we can come to, since it was a war um, not fought for territory, not fought for ideology, not fought for religion, um, not even fought for secret evil people economic gain. Um, and what we knew later is the pretense for our entering the war was a total fraud. It didn't exist at all. The, event, the Gulf of Tonkin. The Gulf of Tonkin never happened. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine, journalist, wrote a book, won an award for it as, you know, Journalist of the Year for that book. But 90% of people we talk to today assume Gulf of Tonkin happened, and it was very unfortunate, and so forth and so on. So I'm, I'm in this very dichotomous world, and the the image or the myth let's go back to it there was a myth very very popular it was a three-volume myth called Lord of the Rings and Lord of the Rings has this little insignificant guy who'd rather be home um, eating somewhat large elaborate meals smoking and gossiping and he has to try and restore the balance between good and evil And it was hard not to feel a certain affinity with Frodo because the the, the evils were, were really doing very well. Hmm. And as the government later said, you know, when we noticed you little psychedelic people, um, we tried to do what we could to prevent you uh, from expanding. And because perhaps... Um, A few magnificent chemists, or whoever, um, made it impossible to stop. Um, The underground of goodness maintained itself through very difficult periods, and I think that's still true today. So, at one level, um, what I was doing in the mid-60s, I've been doing undercover since then. And it looks like it's almost time to reemerge and admit that I'm impossibly optimistic about human beings I am not particularly about optimistic about whether we will save the planet in time but it would be a shame to lose us and there have been times when I have not been so sure that losing us wasn't a fairly good idea, for the, at least for the planet and maybe for a lot of other species.
1: Is your resurgent
2: optimism related to the resurgence of psychedelics? I think my vis- my willingness to admit to optimism may be, huh. um, because it is. Um, I I worked with a group of forty researchers recently. I ran a one day kind of uh, facilitation. And it was incredibly easy. You know, all of these people ran their own projects. They were all leaders. They all had very firm opinions. And I've worked with other groups with those characteristics in the culture as a consultant. And they're really awful to work with because they all kind of say, I I need to prove I'm smart. I need to make sure I'm not a follower. And I know that a lot of the people in this room are wrong if they would just follow me. Yeah. But this group of 40 researchers was just a joy to work with. We did something, and that worked. We did something else. didn't work quite as well. They said, let's change it. We changed it. They were all psychedelic researchers. And it was a distinct subpopulation. They were all... You know, PhDs and MDs and so forth. They all had lots of years of experience. Lots of them were in prestigious institutions. They were certainly a a reasonable cut of scientists. But they all had this this shift in perception Mm. that allowed them to not be run by their egos, but to be run by the agenda. And to use their smarts not to cover their ass or to raise their prominence, but to support everyone else. And that is different, and it, it doesn't make me, you know, wildly optimistic about the future of the United States or so forth and so on, but it reminds me that people still have the basic tools and the desire to be good. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, to be good is to be human in a way. Yeah, and it's really where you started, which is the species tend to survive if they help each other. Right. Uh, And at dinner last night, there was a whole discussion about interspecies cooperation. Uh, And I've been, at the moment, I'm much fonder of trees, I think, than of people, uh, because their ethics are higher. (laughs) (laughs) And there's this wonderful thing in a forest that has three or four dominant species. And the weather patterns favor one species over another at different times of year. And what we find out is that when one species is having a hard time, literally the other species of trees... Divert nutrients from themselves and ship it vers- via the mycelium to other trees. Right. Now, we really don't see that much between humans and other species. We do see, if you if you kind of look at the rainforest, uh, there's an enormous amount of interspecies cooperation. There's also an all, a huge amount of interspecies eating each other. Um, but there is an understanding at a higher level of, of integration that it only all works if all species get enough of a chance to keep surviving. And so that, that is why I'm finding trees so nice, is that they yeah. seem to have a much greater understanding that it isn't take all the, pro- take all the soil you can get. It's take enough soil. And understand that the other trees are important to your own survival as well. That monocultures are fundamentally anti plant, hmm. um, let alone, as we know, anti nutrition and a few other things. Yeah.
1: Kyle, you're just going to let me run roughshod over this podcast? I like it, man. I I don't feel like I need to
0: get involved here. Yeah, I've uh, started reading The Secret Life of Trees since you recommended it to me. And one of my favorite stories is the giraffe story, where the the mycelium will tell the surrounding trees that the giraffe is coming so they will secrete a flavor that
2: the giraffe doesn't like right. and the giraffes have to go about 200 feet they eat a tree and there's all the other trees that are just the same right nearby but the the tree that's been eaten sends a message out to, to saying like giraffe 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 and all the trees who can hear it so to speak um, put out little toxins into their leaves that giraffes don't like but The shouting only is like about 200 yards. So the giraffe, who also does not uh, lose out in this understanding, goes 200 feet away to the next tree. Now, from that, what you get is more giraffes and healthy trees. Win-win. It's very analogous
1: to the Indian you were talking about not shooting the first deer. Right. Actually, it's very much so. Yeah, it's like a built-in preservation system to keep the entire ecosystem functioning. So you're... Uh, 1965-66 you've got a PhD from
2: Stanford in what, psychology? In psychology with a dissertation on the effectiveness of LSD as a therapy. So you're right in there. So I'm right in the middle and I've been advised by my senior thesis advisor who was the ex-president of the American Psychological Association that doing this dissertation would guarantee me not a possible hope of having an academic career. And you said, damn the torpedoes. <laughs> well, what I said is, and he'd, he'd done something very brave in his career. He'd set up the first hypnosis lab, which got him lots of disapproval. Mm. And I said to him, because this was the question is, would he be on my committee? And I needed protection. Sure. And I said, Dr. Hilgard, you took one chance with her, your career. I'd like to take one chance with mine. And there was this wonderful pause, and I can see him now. He looked incredibly avuncular and kind and a gentle smile. And the pause continued, and he said, All right, I'll be on your committee. And he was totally right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But you know
1: what? Sometimes having your academic career... Uh, Torpedo,
2: it isn't such a bad thing. Oh, I am so grateful <laughs> that I did not have an ordinary academic career. Yeah. Um, I had another chance for one and realized, wait a moment, I think I'll do this when I retire, not now. Yeah. And so I was able to do a half dozen careers. Um, but what was lovely in that is um, he understood that what I was doing was a fine piece of conventional work in a sense here's an intervention does it help does it not help you can measure it just very ordinary psychology nothing very sophisticated nothing clever but what he was saying is don't think that just because this is science that you're not going to be um picked on for it that you're not going to be attacked for it that you're going to be disowned for it was it already clear at that point that they were about to schedule lsd mm-hmm. no no because i was uh, i was this had to be legal because i was doing this research what stanford where i was um, had a concern is they they um, called themselves at least then uh, the harvard of the west and Tim and Richard Alpert and Tim uh, Leary had already been fired from right. or released from Harvard and Stanford's fear was they would be the Harvard of the West. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We didn't mean that. He's right. Yeah. So I was, I was. Uh, let's say it took two years to get a committee and six or eight weeks to do the dissertation. And when did you finish? Mm, 65. Oh, okay. And then I uh, ended up doing a creativity study uh, on psychedelics and problem-solving. And at the um, two-thirds of the way through, um, we, a little group in Menlo Park got a letter from the federal government. And the federal government said, um, as of the receipt of this letter, your investigational drug license to give psychedelics is canceled. Now, at this point, mid-morning, mail has arrived. In our little living room setup, there are four senior scientists... Lying on the couch and on the on a mat on the floor with headphones, listening to music through very classy Ampex equipment, the best in the world in those days. And they're going to get up in an hour or two and work on problems they've been unable to solve for months. And here we had this letter. And um, I'm glad the Statue of Limitations has probably run, <laughs> but I said... I suggest we get this letter tomorrow. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and we then went in and worked with these these lovely guys, um, had a few technical and technological breakthroughs, and they went home. Did and you, uh, it ended. Did you work with Stan Grof at that point, or was he still in Czechoslovakia? Stan was... We were not working. I don't think we were... We were working with Stan. I think he'd already gone to Spring Grove. Mm. Um, we were, we were friends. We also uh, tried working with uh, Lyrian Alpert, because I had come from originally taking psychedelics with Alpert. So I made that connection. And again, the hope that a professor at Harvard, Tim, would really move things forward. And at one point, Tim was saying that we should put it in the drinking water, that it was good for everybody. And we said, Tim... We think a little more Why don't you caution. Why dial that
0: one back a little bit, Tim. <laughs> exactly, exactly.
2: I wish we'd had that, that, that idiom available. And Tim said, he said, look, if I win, we all win. And if I lose... You guys will still be left standing You know, you respectable people Who have not been fired and so forth And he was wrong Yeah, he was very wrong about that Yeah, It's kind of like, I'm going to start a forest fire and, But don't worry, you're a really tall tree <laughs> And the answer is Sometimes in a forest fire That really works And sometimes everybody everything's burnt So we were all burnt And my, um, my, my academic career Being scuttled now my psychedelic career was scuttled, and it is a, I think, a tribute to kind of psychedelic equanimity that I really thought, I wonder what I'll do next, rather than feeling, you know, bad or upset or even angry. It was, what a strange turn this has been. And as we say in, the, in that world, what a long, strange trip it still is. Um, And the culture now returning to psychedelics um, out um, out of two things. One is the generation that only knew about psychedelics, that they were bad. Most of them have passed on or retired. And so now when someone goes to the Food and Drug Administration or the Drug Enforcement Administration, the chances are very good that a lot of those people have a lot more experience than they cop to. Yeah. so they're not coming out of fear so they're saying well if you play science really well then we will as long as you do all the steps um, you can do your research now it used to be in the in the, uh, the dark ages of total repression is you'd go to them and they'd say well there's 17 steps and you'd say okay and then step 16 however was go back to step one <laughs> <laughs> so, except the fact that we're
1: never going to approve exactly, this
2: exactly so you had to get that you should you know you should find some other line of work yeah uh, but now that has shifted and also the u.s government's power over other governments has shifted mm. the reason that there's a worldwide ban on, on whatever the united states doesn't like is because the united states would go to other countries and say We'd really like you to, to sign this little treaty. And they'd say, well, we have no interest in this. they say, we'll hurt you if you don't. Right. And they'd say, oh, okay, I didn't quite understand the nature of the conversation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what we've got here is a failure to communicate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And, and, and now, as countries are um, loosening from that... Um, Portugal being the the most fascinating example, Portugal had a lot of drug problems, bad drugs, good drugs, everything. And they said, let's just not make everything illegal because maybe goody goodies like Fadiman and all those those 60s nutcases are right and that that would be help and all the people in drug education and hard drug use said that might work very well and then Portugal said you know with the money we're saving on beating people up and putting them in jail we'll just put that into treatment so if someone actually doesn't like the drug they're on they can go to us and not go to jail for it but get treatment then Now it's been, I guess, 12 years perhaps. And the reports are exactly what all of us goody-goodies anticipated. Drug use is down. Illegal drug passage through the country is down. um, Better drugs are used. I have some wonderful case studies of people in Portugal um, self-medicating for very serious conditions. um, So that we now have a sane model countrywide of what happens when you go back to the original goodness notion of how do we cooperate which is gee someone is in trouble even if we morally disapprove of how they got in trouble or the way they're in trouble there are species and therefore you help them and it turns out that's a an effective model for making a culture safer for everyone, healthier for everyone, and less expensive for everyone. And so that's where we are. And the wonderful thing in the science game is one example actually changes the paradigm. It doesn't change the bureaucracy. That takes a generation. But you no longer can say, well, we don't know what would happen If we treated people like they were nice people. Um, Or that would never work. Right, right. It's the Norwegian prison model that says people in prison should get as much help as possible so they will go away. Versus people in prison should feel continual pain. Not necessarily enough to kill them, just enough so that they won't want to come back. And that's a perfectly plausible scientific theory, and it doesn't work. Yeah. And that treating people well does work. Uh, I'm thinking of a, a woman I know, a wonderful artist, who um, went to prison in Germany for selling LSD to U.S. troops, which has so many levels that I can hardly go there. But anyway, she was in prison. And in prison, she said, um, I'd really like to do art. And so friends actually gave her art supplies. And at one point, she's good, and there's an exhibit. And she said, can I go to the exhibit? And the prison said, of course, <laughs> it's your exhibit. But please come back afterwards. (laughs) Okay? So, um, her prison time was really pretty healthy. Yeah. So, there there are ways to solve very difficult problems if you start from that early assumption that people would rather be good, and that systems that are designed around goodness function extremely well, and that you don't need systems based on repression and competition and real or assumed scarcity yeah
0: and it's also the assumption that if you give people the chance they will rise to the occasion right versus the assumption that there are just battle apples out there and there are throwaway people like those are two fundamentally different ways at looking of looking at the world and a lot of our systems are set up to incentivize one form of behavior or another hence you know cafe gratitude where they're like hey we assume that enough of you will pay for this meal, that it will work right. out. Right. And we assume that if we give prisoners um, the opportunity to act well, they will. Yeah, But if we... In, if we incentivize a system where even a good person has to act poorly within that system, then, they will you're, ju- then you're just going to look at them and be like, right. oh, yeah, well, of course, you know, this look at all this violence in this prison where it's like, look, if I went to prison, I would probably have to get a swastika on my forehead and join a gang. <laughs> right. Because I'm incentivized to.
2: It turns out, by the way, that if you educate people in prison because they are not a well-educated population, that there's a direct correlation with them not coming back. So that education, degrees, finishing high school, finishing college, works every place it's been done. And when people are cutting back funds from prison, guess what's first to go? Yeah. Because there's
1: this idea we shouldn't be right. teaching them. We sh- that should be horrible. It should be a horrible
2: experience. Right. There's a, there's a wonderful term which says we shouldn't coddle them. Yeah. Now, I don't actually know what coddle means, but I know it has the implication that you're being nice to someone who you shouldn't. Yeah. Spoiling a child. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. So the nice thing is the answers are there. You know, um, when you look at climate change and people say we need an incredible technological breakthrough, I'm, that may be true. But many, 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 many of the sub-problems, we know the solution. We know it works. We know that it, it works both economically and socially. And if we have the underlying myth of the fall, mm. let's take the, the great Christian myth of that you are born inherently uh, flawed. Now, if you're born inherently flawed, then being good to you in, in some way isn't going to work. It's kind of, if you're born inherently short, basketball is not likely to be a good career choice. And yeah, I know there's super terrific basketball papers who are short, but very few. Muggsy Bugs. <laughs> right? He's the outlier. <laughs> exactly. So... So here we here we are in this funny world where if you say to people, um, are there solutions to insolvable problems, they say sure. And then you say, well, what is between solution and problem? And then we get into the questions of greed and capitalism and power and the the one percent and so forth. And those are very different those are very those are different class of questions. Yeah. The government heard our conversation, they're coming in the choppers. That's right. <laughs>
0: Yeah, my uh, my mom ran a homeless teen center back when I was maybe five years old to 11 years old. It was the first homeless teen center in Santa Cruz. And she said that when she would have these conversations with these teens, that one of the strangest uh, aspects of it was they would tell her that they would go days without anyone looking them in the eye. And no one expected them to act well. They expected them to be shitty humans. So okay. they acted as they were expected to be.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think people are so yearning for contact that when they get that sort of social and psychological isolation, they'll do anything for contact. And sometimes fighting is contact. Sometimes being arrested is contact. Yeah. Yeah. And I
0: think that a lot of people do like as I'm kind of going back to what Jim, you were talking about early on making the decision to study psychedelics, even though you knew that there was going to be adversity coming from it, because in one way or another, you got permission to do that. Either it was from like a mentor that you respected or you saw a different way of being. we got a dog running around here on the island. (laughs) Unfortunately, Uh, this
2: dog is one of those, if you throw it, I will annoy you forever.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Stop incentivizing him. So I
2: have thrown it a few times, and he has said, (laughs) "Um, you are a sucker, and I'm going to play you until you (laughs) drop from fatigue. Yeah. Uh, So, Jim, did you work with, um, was uh, Oscar Janiger at all? No, Oscar was in Los Angeles. Yeah. And Oscar... um, Um, Kind of ran a salon where uh, people would show up and get LSD. And one of the things that he did that was really wonderful is he 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 invited a lot of artists and he had some Kachina dolls and he asked people to paint them before they were um, taken psychedelics and in the middle. And he had this wonderful collection of all these, you know, far out Kachina dolls. um, Because what we were doing in those days was was trying to figure out what was the range of these psychedelics. What we knew is they disrupted patterns. And that was the original model, Mm. which was psychotomimetic, which is they could mimic psychosis, which if in a bad enough setting, they do. The ultimate bad trip is with scientists who don't know what they're doing. Hmm. Terrifying. (laughs) And then we learned that if you had a good set in setting, they could go in various different directions. (coughs) So we knew they really helped therapeutically. They really helped scientifically with that study I mentioned. Oscar showed that on balance, the artists felt that the work they did under psychedelics was more... um, freeing, more uh, fulfilling, more interesting, and many of them changed their styles. Mm. Um, now, I avoid saying that art critics thought it was better because it was entirely based on whether the art critic had any psychedelic experience or not. Um, but they opened up places. We now know that the, they open up the brain to just simply communicate better across different channels. So it's a very general So to say, what is a psychedelic effect? um, Then we were looking kind of for effects, and we'd find them in one place, and then we'd find them in another and find them in another. Finally, we got that the places in between where we were finding them, they were also there. Mm. So it's really back to a a kind of rainforest model, Mm. which is they make it possible for a more intricate internal ecosystem to thrive. And one of the differences, when you when you live in the north of the world, as, as I do, um, forests are really fairly limited in their diversity. And whole bunches of trees cluster together. Places like redwood forests, almost nothing else grows. And it's, it's very quiet in forests. People say, oh, the silence of the forest. And when I first went to a rainforest, the first thing you get... Is it's not only noisy in the daytime, but it's different noisy at dusk, it's different noisy in the middle of the night, and it's different noisy in the morning. Everything is chattering away. Yeah. And then when you begin to look at trees, you find out that um, this beautiful something tree, there's no other beautiful something trees nearby. There's if you kind of walk in a 30 foot circle, you hit 24 different species. Mm. And what you begin to get is there's a different theory of species between species that hanging out with your own kind, isn't the best survival technique. Mm. And that's a real shift in the whole way. One thinks of, of botany and of, of agriculture, um, which is that in the rainforest where you have enough sun and enough water um, there isn't a dominant nobody there's no kings of the forest you know the lion is the king of the forest I mean like who voted (laughs) (laughs) and what happens in a rainforest aside from that everybody eats everybody and everybody eats everybody's excrement and so forth um, when a tree falls it makes a a little pile of sunlight because the canopy in rainforest is pretty thick and into that little bit of sunlight rushes maybe two dozen different species of plants and trees and then there is a skirmish taking a couple of months as each one tries to grow as fast as possible to make shade so the others will have to back off And so there are these, in a sense, if you're you're watching the rainforest over time, what you see is this cacophony of interest between all the species, punctuated by these little street fights. These little turf fights for, you know, the corner of East 47th Street, the liquor store is gone, we can put anything there. And everybody runs in. And then eventually somebody wins, and then the peace is restored.
0: Not another Starbucks. Right.
2: <laughs> now, I'm remembering someone saying he it's once was in cutting. Texas, <laughs> and there were Starbucks on all four corners. <laughs> so, it's a very, very um, good way. You know, Going to the rainforest really taught me a huge amount about that there are so many different pathways to successful cooperation. So, following up with my I'm trying to get you to name
1: drop because uh, I'm just I, there's so oh, okay. many so many characters. You know, I, f- I feel like I missed the party uh, yep. th- that you were right, right there in the <laughs> middle of. So I'm, I'm fascinated by uh, who you who you've crossed paths with. Um, and talking about the Amazon, Peter Gorman, you have any? Do you know who he is? No. He was editor of High Times Magazine for a dozen years, and he brought um, Sapo to
2: public consciousness. Well, see, that's the fun part, is that there are all these kind of little secret heroes who added to the ecology, so to speak, who brought in a new species into the rainforest. Yeah, of um, consciousness. Or brought a new moth (laughs) that laid eggs there where nobody thought you could live there. Uh, or the you know or the frog that lives in the little water pocket that the leaf makes for the frog, and the tree eats part of what the frog exc- excretes. And yeah. There's all these intricate things that we began to discover. Um, I mean, when we started, um, we used LSD for the very simple reason that we could get it, and it had almost no physical side effects at all. You were getting it directly from Sandoz. Yeah, yeah, and Sandoz poor little Sandoz who who had this incredible substance, and they had no idea how to make money out of it. So what they said is, and it's a very interesting model, they said, anybody who wants it gets it. As long as your stationary is barely okay. Uh, Andy Weil wrote to various companies on vaguely Harvard stationary as an undergraduate. And people would send him mescaline, send him other drugs. So it was a very open world. And Sandoz basically, when I entered this, now this mid-60s, early 60s, I'm a graduate student, and I think, okay, I've had a drug or two. I think the world is very different than I ever thought. I no longer need to only think that reading is the only way towards God. And I'll ask Sandoz if there's any technical papers that I might read. So I wrote a little note to Sandoz. You know, kind of, Hi, I'm Jim. Do you have any papers that you're not using? It was about that level of sophistication. And I got two volumes of the first thousand papers. But that was only the abstracts. And I suddenly realized that there was this massive worldwide interest mm. and the year that LSD was banned as having no possible medical use and high capacity for addiction none of that is true but that's the the, the reading of schedule 1 law it LSD was the most researched psychiatric drug on the planet so i, I thought i was entering into you know kind of like Going into real estate in the Bay Area, you can't lose. Right? There's just all this research from all over the world, at every level. People giving it to bacteria and to mice. There's some really terrible studies on mice. Even the CIA in mice? Do you think? Yeah, the mice just turn over and lie there and go. wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually what happened when when Hoffman first synthesized LSD. It was the 25th derivative of ergot that he was working on. And they give it to mice, and the mice just kind of sat around and so they decided it had no value and that put it back in the, sh- in the, in the shed yeah. Okay, so he didn't know the mice were thinking <laughs> whoa look at that <laughs> we are all mice we're all <laughs> living in a laboratory <laughs> right. man and look at this beautiful this w- isn't real <laughs> no no they're saying look at those beautiful wire walls Woo! <laughs> That's kind of like mice go to Burning Man <laughs> yeah hey, speaking of do you know about Rat Park you ever read about that, oh, was Bruce Alexander? That was the one where they gave rats a nice place to live, and they behave very. They became very civilized. They dropped their addictive exactly. behavior. The cocaine experiment, cocaine. right? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, right. Say that
0: one for people who don't know. That's an interesting yeah, it's, story.
1: So uh, Bruce Alexander was working in Canada in BC. Um, I forget the university near Vancouver, and. Uh, Yeah, this was mid-'80s, I guess, when they were doing all these sort of war on drugs publicity campaign, Just Say No, and one of the things they they showed rats, and they said when you give rats... the option between cocaine and food, they'll keep hitting the cocaine lever until they starve to death. And this researcher, Bruce Alexander, thought, really? That seems, I mean, you would think the survival impulse would trump anything else. So he looked into the research and he saw, well, OK, this is all rats that are isolated in small cages with nothing to do. Total, like like the rat equivalent of solitary confinement. And rats are very social creatures. So he said, "Okay, let's set up a cage that replicates a rat's natural environment to the extent possible. Different ages, young, older, lots of tunnels to crawl through and balls to push around and things to jump on and move around and then offer them the same scenario. The rats tried the cocaine once, never again. No, I'm not interested. So what is that? I mean, that that sort of ripples out into so much research. Yeah. So much of what we look at is with an unacknowledged distortion in the environment of the creature that's being tested.
0: Kyle goes to prison. Look at Kyle. He has a swastika. He's stabbing people <laughs> with right. sharpened spoons now.
1: Right. What's that tell you about human nature? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Humans are innately horrible creatures.
2: Right. I mean, that's essentially what we do. And that we need to protect people from spoons. Right, yeah. <laughs> spoons should be illegal. That's right. And yeah. the, the the what is it? The National Spoon Association <laughs> says no. We should have more spoons. How Just say people, no How to many spoons.
0: people die from spoons each year? Spoon death. Yeah. Well, that, that that's also this ar- argument that like we pick certain things that we deem to be dangerous. Yeah. Too dangerous. Like if enough people died from spoons, you know, spoons can be addictive as well.
1: Well, well like, sex addiction. I just had a guy, you know, send me one of those little intros that I stole from you, Kyle. Mm-hmm. People listen to the podcast send a little thirty second Hey, I'm you know, I love the podcast oh, right. and one of the guys who's cool, he's like, Hey, love the podcast, I'm you know, wherever I was and I've just accepted the fact that I'm a sex addict. So I'd use that one in the <laughs> intro to um, a porn star interview. <laughs> <It seemed laughs> appropriate. But I mean I I not to minimize his suffering or, or his situation, but I don't think I don't believe in sex addiction i don't believe in addiction to things i believe in in compulsive behaviors
2: but i don't think it's about the thing well let me put out something that i'm i'm not comfortable at all um saying that i believe this because the part of me that says don't don't do that you will lose what little credibility you have left but i've Listened to a a report once Of someone taking a psychedelic In the the jungle And she was back for her second year Because the first year Her depression of many years Had alleviated And she's Basically being tormented By some demons And into the visual world That she is seeing In her ayahuasca uh, state Walks the shaman Into her Basically into her Let's call it a dream life. And he says something to the demons and does something to the demons, and they go away. And she basically recovers and does not have symptoms again. And I looked at that, and I thought, we have a very, very well-established truth that if you cut your hand open, it is opportunistic for various bacteria and viruses to get in there. And they don't have any desire to help you. They simply are going to eat as much as they can, as fast as they can, and should you die from that, um, they will swear they didn't intend it. And I thought, what if mental illness was like a wound? You have, say, a trauma, somebody, um, some sexual terrible thing, and you're hurt. But the wound is open. And Mm. then the spirits that feed off of trauma or feed off of depression or feed off of what the body does with alcohol or feed off what the physical changes are with porn and that those infect you. And then you go to therapy and you go to meetings and you take uh, antidepressants and all that helps you but the wound is really open because the, pe- the beings feasting on it have, are keeping it open. Now, then, let's skip Western medicine here. Then you go to a shaman, and the shaman says, I can see, and my allies who are also spirits can see that you are being eaten by um, anger, anger demons, and I'm going to help them leave you because I can help them both get out and to go to someplace better. Now, I'm thinking of a real friend recently who seemed to have an anger addiction. Hmm. See, most addictions, you get some, you get some, it looks like you get some benefits. A sex addict gets sex, you know, um, an alcohol addict gets that lovely rush until you're too drunk and so forth. But it, I looked at anger and I thought, wait a moment. There's nobody, there's a zero benefit. You feel terrible. Everyone you touch feels terrible. I fucking love you. hating people. It's <laughs> yeah. the best. Right. It's, it's, you know, it's like ultimate bad breath. <laughs> 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 and he's recently gone to a shaman and, and the shaman basically released the anger demon. And so far his behavior is incredibly different. Now, he had really good reasons for being angry at certain people in his life, but he didn't have good reason for anger as as a kind of infinite loop. And so I'm really looking at going back to what Pasteur discovered, which is you make an opening in the physical level, physical things come and they can harm you, but your system is designed to keep them out. And... I'm now beginning to see that, the, that can, the mental system may have the same set of problems. Now, that doesn't mean that um, if your girlfriend dumps you, that you're going to be attacked by demons for the rest of your life. But it does mean that that's possible.
1: And it's certainly, again, we're back to myth. Mm-hmm. right? Now, whether or not this is true is an irrelevant question, really because it's simply a way of thinking about something that is beyond comprehension on any physical, you know... No, it's the
2: narrative you're giving yourself. No, I'm actually taking Mm -hmm. a different position that it's perfectly thinkable. Well, yeah, yeah, no. (laughs) And that it's thinkable because if we lined up a thousand cultures, 850 of them would say, yes, there are these spirits from the upper worlds and the lower worlds, and they interact with human beings and some of them actually like to help human beings just as human beings like to help human beings and some of them really just want to harm you because that's their nature Mm. just as you grow carrots and then you kill them all Mm. and from the carrots point of view it's a very strange behavior that no matter how nice they are you kill them right so here is a way of looking at it and as I say, the, I'm beginning now to collect some stories that make sense. And it shifts, of course, um, what, it, what it says is that Western science, by denying looking at this, will never find it. Okay? And um, I'm just writing a little essay about transpersonal education, and I was with some Stanford graduate students. At the time, I was also helping set up a transpersonal graduate school. And um, one of our students, the transpersonal students, had taken his, his year of dissertation research and went to Africa and had been accepted by a tribe that had a, a system of trances and ancestor worships where they'd get in touch with ancestors and they'd ask them questions. And the ancestors would say, you know, you're really not behaving well, or you should do this, or... Um, Mrs Jones down the block is going to have something you want so they were incredibly important resources of information and and health and and illness and he had come back and by the end of his year he was in he was given he was into the tribe he was an, initiated both as a tribal member and as a priest hmm. So he came back and he was doing a dissertation on the effectiveness of this and the val- the value of these spirit communications from ancestors. And the Stanford students were very clear that you can't do that at Stanford in the psychology department, study of the mind, psychology. And I didn't have to say why, because they were clear that since dead people can't talk to you, you can't then go look for dead people who are talking to people because we've already eliminated them from acceptable discourse and then one of the students said to me the psychology department supports my dissertation research and I said what are you working on she said the visual system of ferrets now I have a degree in psychology the study of the mind which is mainly about people. And I looked at her, and I thought, at my school, we wouldn't let you do a dissertation on the visual system of ferrets. Now, I happen to like ferrets. I have friends who have ferrets, so I'm not like, this isn't a prejudice. Some of my best friends Exactly. Ferrets. Some of my best friends have done very interesting things with ferrets. <laughs> which did not particularly relate to their visual perceptual system, as far as I can tell. But what I realized is... The that- lights are off. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, if you get, get this woman off mic, she just says, I just really love ferrets.
2: <laughs> that was the whole reason. <laughs> just needed to figure out a way to spend a lot of time with ferrets. And the and that what I was seeing is that, that the problem for Western science is it kind of says, before we get to the edge, we're going to say that there isn't anything past that. Right? right. And when you do that, one, it's no longer science. It's simply um, a somewhat bizarre religion. And two, it has a huge amount of cultural implications. Yeah.
1: You're not going to find what you're not looking for. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, exactly. and you deny the existence of. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I had some burning question in the middle <laughs> I, of that. <laughs> I've lost it. Do you
0: think so? Going back to your wound analogy, do you yeah. think that for oh. people to move through hard times, it's important for them to go back to the, the Incident that opened the wound And that is what psychedelics can provide For people, a lot of people will report Using ayahuasca and going back To that moment of trauma and thus Being able to see it from a new perspective And move through it Well,
2: There's a term called reframing Which is you look at things differently And and that shift Can happen in a a number of ways I mean the one that I like And I used to use when I was uh, Working with like 50 executives in a room And I'd say for reframing, can you go back to a time when someone putting their tongue in your mouth was disgusting? And there'd be this kind of quiet in the room. I woke up in Chris's van one night. Right? <laughs> and then. Later on, (laughs) I say later on, later on in your life, you you found that that wasn't so bad. (laughs) And there would be this relief and laughter in the room. And I'd say it's the same event. But you began to have a larger view of the world that included that. And you realized that the reason it was yucky is that you were not really able to take it in the way it was intended or that your body wasn't able to respond and so forth and so the question of do you need to go back to the original trauma is absolutely maybe yeah um, and also reframing the
1: even this, the the secondary effects of the trauma can be reframed so I'm thinking for example of Tanya Lerman's work At she's at Stanford mm-hmm. uh, and she studied um psychotics around the world and found that, as predicted, around 1% of the people in in any population that's been studied uh, seem to suffer from psychosis and involving auditory hallucinations most commonly. Um, So everybody's hearing voices. The question is, what are the voices saying? And how do you feel about that? So, there, those are two questions. So, the first thing is, what are they saying? In America, the voices, as we all know, say, kill, kill, kill. You're horrible. You're a disgusting piece of shit. You don't deserve to be alive. In India, the voices say things like, today's a good day to clean the house. <laughs> you know? Right. You should be nicer to your cousin. It's kind of like what you were exactly. saying about the ancestors yeah. in, in the African tribe there. And- uh, so, there, there's what the voices say, and that's framed largely by the cultural expectation. And then there's, you know, sort of related to that, there's also how do you feel about the voices? And, and in her later research, she's showing that actually we all experience auditory hallucinations. The difference between a psychotic and a non-psychotic appears to be that the healthy response is, to ignore it right yeah it's which like,
0: voices are you taking more seriously yeah yeah I asked um, a friend of mine named Annie Leonard a number of years ago she made a, a great film called the story of stuff right. and it which went mega viral and mm. you know she's praised in so many circles and villainized in others and I met her when I was like 20 years old and I said how do you deal with all of these just this vitriol coming at you and she said Kyle I have five people in my life Whose opinions I take really seriously, and I really value their feedback. And if if they tell me it sucks, I really listen to them. And pretty much everyone else is in a different category. Yeah. And I just thought that that was such a um, a pragmatic way to go about that because we so often take our bad moods more seriously than we take our good moods, and we take bad feedback more seriously than we take good feedback. Hence, like you can li- you can read fifty positive comments, and the one person's like, "Chris, eat a dick." you like do, you bastard. I'm
2: going to stick my ferret on you. (laughs) Well, I've I've watched my, my daughter, who's an ethnobotanist and a very, very popular professor. And when she started teaching, she'd teach 200 kids and she'd get 180 praises, some neutral and one or two people that said she sucked. And I would get these calls about how upset she was. As she's been teaching, she has more and more understood that the overreaction to the negative is quote an overreaction and the wonderful thing i know as teaching is when people attack you uh, either they have something useful a criticism that makes sense or they're not your problem they're very much what your friend says they're just not one of the people you listen to, so the 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 people who attack you are usually worth listening to um, not f- but not for their emotional rush you know the the guy who who says, "I'm a sex addict, and you say "I don't believe in sex addiction." that's the beginning of an interesting dialogue because he clearly does, and he says, "My evidence is you know physiological, and yours might be theoretical and and here we go, yeah, and so um what I've learned is I, I'm when you feel okay about what you're doing, you want some criticism. Yeah, you yeah. want someone to tell you if you have food in your teeth. Exactly, exactly. That The notion that if you're only getting praise, one of the things you know is you're not risking anything anymore. Mm. And you may be in this social media age more and more eliminating anybody that might help you. So it's one of the one of the problems when you're a psychedelic guide, um, which is now becoming more visible. That according to Michael Pollan, there are hundreds of guides around the United States who operate and help people with high dose psychedelics. A problem, and we all looked at this at one point, is how do you prevent the feeling that you're really terrific because the people who come to you have incredible life changes.
1: That's, that's so important. You know, Casilda and I, my wife who you met, she's sort of a renegade psychiatrist and and we're looking at moving more into that world and working more with people in Costa Rica or Peru and, and the one thing that we're both very hesitant about is to be associated with people who are working out of ego, yeah. and it's so common. It's so aggravating because to me the the incredible power of psychedelics is is to enable you to experience ego death and get beyond your ego and yet so many people seem to want
2: to be gurus and shamans and mystical well, what beings. Well, hap- what happens is is you have this experience and either you think you're God and that you're part of everything or that you're part of everything. Now, you know, there's a little just a little distinction in there. But yeah. you know that it's really special. Because when you come back down, either people avoid you or laud you, but they're really pretty interested because you're radiating a lot of energy. So that's the starting place. When you are doing this on a kind of weekly basis and people look into your eyes and what you know is they're seeing the highest divinity in the universe and it's hard not to think that maybe they're right yeah. <laughs> and maybe the reason I'm such a good guide is because I'm such a special person mm. and I recently met with a, a very very important guide who's known in this strange underworld and I was struck by his ordinariness his, his, his humility not in the I'm the most fucking humble person in the room. <laughs> <really>. <laughs> but genuinely, I get to do this work. Yeah. And he doesn't charge that much, and he does wonderful work. And it's clear that he understands that he has the the job of carrying the water bucket and giving people water and bringing them back to life. So yeah. do
0: you think the only antidote to that is gratitude like being
2: on a full gratitude journey every day and well when you're really special you can get away with that (laughs) I am so grateful that I am so special yeah okay what we came (laughs) up with it was very mechanical which is nobody should be a guide that doesn't have someone they report to Hmm. who says Oh, I notice everyone who's working with you now wears the same jewelry you do, <laughs> <laughs> and you're charging At for your it, tra- <laughs> and you you allow them a discount <laughs> yeah. from your friend the jeweler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. And if you learn some basic
0: eye contact skills and effective pausing in a few of those <laughs> phrases, it's yeah. really easy
2: to yeah. put people in a trance. Yeah, and 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 you are doing this incredible work. Yeah, you are ch- see, the point is, it's real. You're changing lives, but you're changing lives because you. Are giving them a plant that you had nothing to do with the creation of, or a synthetic that you bought off of some guy, who made it in Hong Kong. Um, so in a sense, it's ridiculous. It's as if yeah. the milkman said, "Without me, your children would die," <laughs> or or a guy, a river rafting guide who takes
1: people down the Grand Canyon, taking credit From for the, the Grand, Grand, Grand Canyon. Canyon. Right. Right. It's like, yeah, it's cool what you're doing and you're lucky. What a great job. You know, as you were saying, what a wonderful thing to be able to do. But all you're doing is showing people
2: something that exists. Let me show you what it sounds like. I'll just take me. (laughs) Is I have my first true transcendental breakthrough experience where I'm one with everything. And that evening I'm up in the hills above Stanford looking out over the valley. And I keep saying to myself, I really did a good job. <laughs> I'm pretty impressed. This is really beautiful. I did it, and I was in that place where the distinction between me and anything real that would made actually created things was not present. So in a in a nice way, I had no ego, but you could see the seeds of um, of what someone calls the post psychedelic ego inflation, and it is real. And it's a nice issue. You see, again, as the culture now begins to um, be willing to be helped and substances are more available, this is the kind of issue that's very real. And that we do know that we are very prone to want someone who's going to tell us um, that we're special because we revere them. Right? That's the disciple Ego inflation. Um, There's a wonderful Sufi story about a teacher who sits backwards on his donkey as his followers are following him. And they say to him, this is so embarrassing. (laughs) You know, you look like such a a nut. (laughs) Yeah. And he basically says... (laughs) (laughs) he says that way I don't end up with disciples who are who tell other people they're you know they're my disciples Uh, so it's an issue that spiritual teachers deal with Uh, but spiritual teachers almost always have spiritual teachers if your teacher is ayahuasca ayahuasca may not worry about that issue
0: Right. Well, going back to what you were saying uh, earlier with biodiversity and how important it is for plants to be around plants that are unlike them, I think it's really Mm. important for humans to spend time with people who are into different stuff. And I think it's very valuable to constantly be in circles where you realize that you suck (laughs) and that you have a lot to learn. Mm. And it can make you sometimes feel like you suck if you spend too much time like i'll use my myself as an example i was just on the big island on a hunting trip with uh a guy who's like a black belt hunter named justin lee it's like <laughs> the most badass humans ever he dives down to 200 feet to spear fish and could shoot an animal at 100 yards away and i felt like a blumbering neanderthal around around him but like it's kind of good for you to do that. And it's becomes easier and easier as you get older to just spend time around people who are telling you that you're the man. Right.
2: Right. Cause you set your life up around that if you can. Yeah. You follow your successes. Exactly. You, you, and you push your failures. Away. Exactly. <laughs> right now. I think Kyle was kind of hinting that he would like to take me surfing. So I would have a feeling of total humility and, and in a, in a, Lack of capacity, and I really appreciate. I have a feeling you'd be pretty
0: good. But I've saying, heard your body surfing I, stories saying, down saying, in
2: L.A. Yeah, help. Jim grew up in L.A. Yeah, well, give I, me give me a 15, I, 16 year old
0: I, body again, and I I'll I, see what I can do. I think I asked you what your first <laughs> transcendental experience was, and you said it was when you were rolling along the sand, feeling right. the energy of the waves right. flip you when, around.
2: Right when you had lost the wave, but the wave had not lost you. Uh, you were one with the wave. <laughs> there, exactly, <were> you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the wave didn't worry about holding its breath <laughs> yeah have you had any near death experiences S- oh speaking yes speaking of that oh okay. yes oh um I have one I liked <laughs> okay. you know in retrospect it kind of sounds good <laughs> somewhere noticed like near death um I was on a rafting trip and um I'm really not athletic but we were on a rafting trip and a wonderful guide and a wonderful river and we are having a good time and, and one evening after dinner we went swimming in the river and I'm a, I'm a good swimmer. And the current pulled me under. And I'm under. And I think, oh, I'm under. I'll, you know, uh, I know how to get up from water. And I did that. And that didn't help. <laughs> so I did that again. <laughs> and, and that didn't help. And I got that the possibility of my dying was very high because no one was around. I mean there were other people in the river but no one particularly was near me that I knew of. And so I the current popped me up. You were in a whirlpool? No, I was in a current that basically an undertow, undertow an undertow in a river which I assume you know about and I don't. No, that's frightening. Rivers scare me. (laughs) (laughs) Really? They really
0: scare me because waves will let you go. Eventually. Uh, yeah. Like, if you get pulled under on a really big wave, like, my mantra is, it's only temporary. It's just temporary. You've held your breath for 20 seconds. Anyone can hold their breath for 20 seconds. It's very rare that you'll be underwater for, even on the biggest of waves, for more than 20 seconds. Hmm. But a river... Is different because if you get pinned up against a rock, you it's can't forever, just you can't right. just wait it out.
2: Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so interesting. So that was really death, and with enough time to notice it and to realize that it you know it all made sense. You know, car crashes. You know, you don't really get any chance to do any reflection. Mm. Um, and that evening, according to my family, um, after dinner around the campfire. Um I I have a sense of humor and it's and it's useful in what I do, but they indicated that they have never before or after seen me as funny, hmm. as hmm. deeply comic about this incident and about whatever else I was talking about, that my after effect of almost dying was to in a sense get everyone else to really listen, but not take it seriously, mm. and and so that's you know I've, I've, yeah I've had a couple. I mean I'm also um, see on the dull side. I'm, I have a pacemaker, which means they put that in if your heart doesn't beat in a way that um, that you're going to last long. And as I was being wheeled into the operating room to have this little device installed, the nurse looked down at me and said, "You want to know what your pulse is?" I said, "Sure." She said, 14. I said, faster. <laughs> <laughs> are you, Lance Armstrong? <laughs>
1: yeah, 14.
2: Yeah, but, you see, that has, you know, that had no charm in it. There's no metaphysics and there's no natural forces. There's no, you know, you're at that rock climb and you slip right. and either there's a ledge or there isn't none of that it was so as I say yeah there are a couple of times when I've gotten close to death now one of the things about psychedelic experiences is that isn't um, it's too bad when you die but it's not a big deal Hmm. from the psychedelic point of view because your personality dies, you know, Jim Fadiman dies, and honestly, that's not going to really harm the world much when Jim Fadiman dies. But at another level, I don't die Hmm. because I also wasn't born. Just as um, individual items in the rainforest die, but the rainforest doesn't. Right. So have psychedelics... It sounds to me
1: like psychedelics have had a, an important role in your own spiritual yep.
2: development. Well, they are my spiritual development. I mean, I've been involved in lots of spiritual movements, and I've taught Sufism for 25 years, <coughs> but I'm not a Sufi. Um, that, that same day when I was saying, oh, what a nice creation I made, um, that evening I ate raw Jello. Uh, so it wasn't that my body had to become wise. <laughs> <laughs> but that was all I could handle. What's the wait? wait jello. Uh, it's little. It's basically sugar with a little bit of flavor in it. Oh, like unmade Un- jello, un-made jello. Right. powder. Right. I see. <laughs> grains. It's sugar. <laughs> I, I saw the step
0: by step instructions and thought oh, this is going to be a process. <laughs> it's a little too much for me to handle.
2: But but that same day uh, was the realization that death is not an illusion. Definitely not. But it is a reconfiguration of the same stuff. Hmm. You know, that that when someone dies, nothing leaves the planet. It gets recycled. And yeah. one of my favorite people was a wonderful man in Costa Rica who also had established the University for Peace and been a very major figure in the UN. And he said, when I die, he was quite elderly. He said, I want to be buried um, in a very shallow grave um, nearby in the rainforest and I said why he said because that'll be the fastest way I'll get to be birds and plants and butterflies and all kinds of things um, because you know in the rainforest things get decomposed as fast as anything you know as possible because everyone wants to eat them Yeah, and that that's the kind of thinking about death that is a shift. It doesn't mean you don't put on your seatbelt, because the Jim Fadiman part of me very, very much likes to be alive and appreciates it and doesn't want it to end and doesn't want to be sick and doesn't want to have, you know, a ingrown toenail that will hurt and bother him. Um, but at another level, um, the system is clearly designed for continuation. It's not designed for endings. Does that make
1: sense? Yeah, it does. I, I was sitting at this table yesterday talking to, to Jay Nichols, uh, who's a... Did you meet him at the party last night? He's a marine biologist who writes about water. Yeah. Um, fascinating guy. We were talking about this subject, and we were talking about how one... For me, anyway, the the most sort of satisfying, metaphorical way of thinking about death is that life is like a raindrop. Mm-hmm. That's Jim Fadiman. Is the raindrop? Yep. And you hit. Eventually, you hit the surface of the ocean, and the raindrop's gone. But that water, right, right just rejoins the ocean. And yeah. Wow, well, guys, I love these metaphors.
0: They're
2: really <laughs> helpful for me to think about the world. <laughs> well, uh, another another kind of psychedelic experience, which which that makes sense because that's actually the way I think of it. Is that Jim Fadimanness actually doesn't vanish? You know. Poof, But dribble, 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 it kind of, you know, it's then in in a billion other drops. And when a new drop forms, and that new drop then has a psychedelic experience, and it thinks it's remembering past lives, I think it's just remembering the various lives that are little pieces of life that are in that drop, which would make it okay for some remarkable percentage of people who do past life regression. To be um, the head of Egypt of the you know 12th dynasty, or to be Marie Antoinette, meaning statistically just doesn't make sense if you have real continuation of this life leads to this life leads to this life. But if you take your memory bank and you spread it out over a few miles of ocean and then reconfigure it, there'll be some of you left, but there'll be a lot of other things as well, and, and so. It's like I like the reincarnation people, but I think they're overdoing the specialness. Mm. Right. So you're not the reincarnation of Marie Antoinette, but you might have a little Marie Antoinette in there. We all do. We all do. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of like the, the atmospheric scientists say, you know, you're breathing in the same air that Julius Caesar breathed out. Right. And the answer is, yeah, but not much of it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I like that perspective Because I think that it
0: um, It's a healthy balance between Not being paralyzed By the thought of death Because as you say like it's not It might not be that bad, so you can go out and lead a really bold life, and it's also um, a perspective that doesn't lend itself to leading a frantic life. Also, I think that there, like I personally, probably err more on the side of like really recognizing that life is finite and I need to do as much as I can. Right, and I think that there's a healthy balance between being bold and getting your bucket list done, and also taking time to hang out in a hammock.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the notion that we all deal with it, which is, is more better? And the answer is sometimes absolutely. And sometimes it's a terrible idea. What we might call wisdom is to figure out which one you're in. You know, is having a fifth piece of cheesecake really such a great idea when it's the best cheesecake in the entire world? And that's like, that's a, that's a toss up. But if you're a diabetic, it's less of a toss-up. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, uh, my mother makes the best cheesecake in the world.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, should we wrap this up? Yeah. We're getting attacked by mosquitoes. I don't know if you noticed that. We are. Yeah. Paradise lost. <laughs> well, I hope we never die. Um, Although those of you who are listening to this on my podcast are about to hear a song called Smoke Alarm, which reminds you that you are going to die someday. Yeah. Yeah. And just to wrap it up,
0: I I was kind of alluding earlier to how you've both given yourselves permission in your life to go outside of your circles Hmm. and, uh, have encountered adversity as a result, but I think it's led you both down really exciting roads. And for myself, I think that for a long time, I kind of stayed in the surfer environmentalism worlds and needed people like yourselves to give me permission to go down areas of curiosity. And, uh, that's like the best kind of life I can think of is when you're purely following your curiosity and you end up someplace really special, like on an island with a gazebo around you, being attacked by mosquitoes. With uh, now, if we if we rescind
2: if we rescind our permission, will you stop doing some of this stuff? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I,
1: I hereby give you permission to ignore anything that I say yeah. at any point.
2: No, I'll go yeah. for that. T-
1: it's t- certainly I take it all with a grain of salt and a ferret.
0: Well, oh, okay. well,
2: it's simply true of each of us here that we are free to not take the advice we give ourselves yeah and that's, I think, part of the freedom that you're really referring to. I love to. giving
0: advice that I don't take myself. I do yeah. it all the time. It's so easy. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like it's like exercising without doing any of the work. <laughs>
1: it's like watching an exercise video. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been watching that exercise video over and over. I'm really worn out. <laughs> I get my mirror neurons firing. That's, <laughs> that's, that's you let, the, let them do the out. exercise. <laughs> exactly.
2: Okay. <laughs> right this on. has been just terrific, guys. Thank you so much. For Thank them. you.
3: Baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. And what's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say (laughs) When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby, what's a big deal?